Hello, welcome again to another edition of Establishing Shot. Now in season three, we're, we're uh, most uh, series peak. Um, my name is Ted Barron. I, I don't know what that meant. Um, I was thinking about like TV series, how like season three is usually like where, you know, they really get into their groove. Is, yeah. that, is that kind of where we get into our groove? Um, maybe. We'll see. Time uh, will tell. <laughs> So, hello, I am Ted Barron. I am the executive director here at the DeBartolo Performing Arts Center. Joining me, as always, is my noirish uh, colleague, uh, Ricky Herbst. Hey, everybody. <laughs> no, I, I, I was smoking. That's yeah, why. No, I was thinking, Heavily. I just, I just uh, Ricky has a, uh, a fondness for the color black in his attire, so that's, that's where the noirish reference came into. Not because of he is a stock character out of a... 40s murder mystery. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where that came from. Um, Ricky and I just returned from the Toronto Film Festival. So we thought uh, we would give you all, all of you wonderful listeners, our top three films that we saw at the festival. Um, so kind of give you a rundown of uh, some of the cool things that we saw over the past week. Um, but before we get into it, we just wanted to talk a little bit about the festival experience because whenever we go to Toronto, um, I don't know I don't know if this happens to you with, uh, with you, Ricky, but I always get the same kinds of questions of like, oh, what famous people did you see or, you know. None. <laughs> <laughs> I saw semi-famous people. Uh, I was, oh, I saw, I, in, in our, in, we stayed at the same hotel, I saw, uh, what's his name? Robert Wool, uh, who oh. played who played Arliss. He really? Was like, he was waiting for the elevator. Oh, that's <laughs> that's a big luminary. <laughs> Arliss, cash, cash, cash sign. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ar- Ar- Arla dollar sign, dollar sign. Uh, I saw him in the lobby, um, and then I did go to a pre- I did go to one premiere, which I'll mention, but. Um, that makes me feel better. Like I, I was worried. It was like, oh, he was staying at the same hotel as us. What, what, what life yeah. has begotten? What of him? <laughs> but now I'm like, oh, we stayed at a nice hotel because Arliss was there. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Made it look a little bit more uh, fashionable, and we upgraded. Um, but you know, just to sort of let po- folks know what that experience is like. I mean, you've been. This is your third trip, is it, or second? Third. Third trip. So. Um, what are some of the things that kind of stand out to you about kind of how uh, that whole experience works? Well, I like that Billy Bishop Airport. <laughs> I like the island. I like Flying Porter, uh, featured sponsor of the top three That's Porter, right. Porter Airlines. Airlines. Porter Airlines sponsor of our Toronto. Uh, man, I'm making our I'm making those big bucks at Delta that <laughs> underwrite those pretty mad right now. Uh, I, yeah, it's a very the ease of it is is great because everything is so centrally located. Where you're dropped off, where you're you're able to stay, uh, geographically you're not pushed to the hinterlands. Yeah, um, and you don't have to walk through 110 degree heat like some festivals this summer <laughs> for 45 <laughs> or, or minutes. Conversely, you know, in the middle of the winter in Berlin, right, um, which is what I experienced. In Berlin is very spread out, you know, as a festival. But yeah, Toronto, I think for most of what we see or most of where we see things, it's pretty centrally mm-hmm. um, located. I like how it happens annually during a, a major hurricane. So that always, <laughs> you know, you have a hurricane in the U.S. Open every year. Yeah. <laughs> like going to be your backdrop, what's on TV. Yeah. Those are both fascinating to me. Um, 
My thing is it's always whether the uh, Red Sox are playing the Blue Jays and if I want to skip out on the festival for a game in the middle of it all. Just ah, to get a little... have you done that before? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I did it when during, uh, when David Ortiz was playing like his in his last season. I said, I got to go. I got to yeah. go. It's my last chance to see him. I haven't, uh, you know, I, I, I even when I've been to Toronto for other reasons, I really haven't done the touristy things there. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen a game at beautiful Blue Jays Stadium. Sky Dome. <laughs> is it still the Sky Dome? I don't know what they call it. The Rogers Center. Rogers, Rogers Center. There it is. I haven't been to the CN Tower. Just, yeah. One of these days. Yeah. Um, but that's a nice thing about the festival is like you go and you know how like sometimes if people are coming from the academic side of things, people go to academic conferences, but they don't actually go to hear the talks. They go for the accoutrement and the trimmings of mm-hmm. the conference mm-hmm. uh, to hang out on the beaches of Hawaii or whatnot. Right. Um, this is going to come off, I realize, as... Uh, backhanded compliment. Uh, Toronto doesn't distract you from your goods in some way. Like, but people are there. They're focused. You have people that want to see a lot of movies. Yeah. Um, and it's I, I like that energy about it. Yeah, it's funny. I used to do about five to seven films a day. Um, when I would go to the festival, and now I'm at a point where I, I maybe do three or four. I just, it, you know, I don't. In terms of you know, just being able to process everything mm-hmm. that's there, because I mean, that's one of the things that's great about Toronto is just the the scale of it all is that they show so many films, um, and they have things. I mean, sometimes it's a struggle because you know you'll have two or three films running simultaneously, and you want to see all three of them, but. Um, you know, based on your schedule, it's often, that's often hard to, hard to do. And you can do the, you can stack things so that you say, oh, I'm going to give 30 minutes to this movie and I'll step out and go to this one. And sometimes you watch those 30 minutes and you stay hooked right? and you stay through it. So, uh, because everything is located next to one another, well, not everything, but the vast majority of screenings I'm going to are in one cineplex, mm-hmm. uh, I can walk across the hall and see something else. And that's, I think, the the best thing about yeah, it. Yeah, and it's not frowned upon if you do that. But that's but but to be clear, what's, what we're talking about is we, we go to see um, – we don't necessarily go to the public screenings. Uh, we maybe see – you know, maybe – I only, I think, went to one public screening while I was there during the week. Um, we're I mostly going yet. to, yeah, press and industry screenings, mm-hmm. um, just because of you know the the access the the access pass that that Ricky and I get for the festival is specifically for this this kind of parallel to the main fe- to the public face of the festival, uh, which is uh, you know the public face or the public screenings where you see you know celebrities walking down the red carpet and um, you know fanfare panels and, and talkbacks and that's things right. like that that's right whereas press and industry screenings are just are just the films themselves and and like ricky said most of those are in the same um cineplex so you get to kind of bounce around between them and it's yeah it's perfectly acceptable to kind of sample things mm-hmm. as opposed to being seen as oh he walked out on this film yes. uh, <laughs> there's not there's no shame attached festival to buzz yeah exactly so um, yeah, so just, it, but it's, uh, but the, the, again, the volume of things, the number of people who get to go, I always, you know, love to catch up with old friends, uh, while I'm there. Um, it's well, a, and you're an East coaster and it, there's, a big, there's a lot of East coast presence. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely big, you know, Boston. Well, New York is the biggest of course, but, um, but yeah, there's a good Boston contingent that I usually go, go, uh, see and say hello to, um, which I enjoy. So. Yeah, it's yep. a- so the 
the the people uh, certainly added bonus. Um, uh, I also say the thrifting is nice. <laughs> it's like good yeah. old school mid nineties curated thrift shops where <laughs> things are inexpensive. Yeah. And the American dollar is pretty strong right now, right. so it's even less expensive. Right. I came back with two Santa sacks, <laughs> oh, which is way too much this year. <laughs> One didn't cut it. Huh? Well, they don't appreciate a 1988 Calgary Olympic hat uh-huh. the way I do. <laughs> and so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, no, it's just, it is, it's a great week. Yeah. And I think because, and uh, because it is so easy. And you're able to do a lot and run around and have, you know, up at 7 a.m., down at 1 a.m. kind of nights Mm -hmm. or days or both. Uh, I have so much energy that when I come back, it takes me a day or two and then I collapse. Yeah. Because I don't realize that. I how much how much running. you expended, right? Yeah. Yeah. Just you think like, oh, you spent a week watching movies. Mm-hmm. Why would that be exhausting? It catches up with you <laughs> once you're gone. But it doesn't catch up during the festival, which is a good sign. Right. That shows that they're right. doing something well. Yeah, we were we were both commenting about how quickly it seemed to be going. And I think that was a, a, a testament to the fact that it was a good festival this year. It was a good, you know, uh, not a lot of films that just seemed to be real chores to kind of get through. Um, no. <laughs> yeah. Not too many. Not too many. It's usually. I think there were less than usual. Right. Yeah. Or at least maybe we were choosing more wisely. Yeah. Maybe that's on. That's on us. Yeah. All right. So in terms of choosing wisely, um, we've each got three films to to talk about. Um, what's the What's one of your? Uh, we're not ranking these, are we? No. 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 Just... These are just my top three. Okay. So what's your first one? Things that I saw. Uh, my first one is a film called Human Capital, and this is by a director, uh, Mark Myers, uh, and I'm just realizing I've never heard his name said aloud. Could be Myers. I think it's Myers. Uh, but Mark, as no one loved him, mm-hmm. uh, recently made a film called My Friend Dahmer, uh, which I described as one of the best like after school specials <laughs> that's ever been made. <laughs> And it was uh, it was a film that I thought was really effective and did a great job. And I just attributed a lot of that to the source material mm-hmm. and not so much the director. And he has a new film out, which I would describe as one of the best like Sunday evening movie of the weeks <laughs> <laughs> ever made. Sure. Uh, uh, so, uh, but so I think there I think there's something to him. He knows how to make. Uh, a particular type of movie very, very well. I think he does melodrama well. Mm-hmm. And I think he has an eye for source material. So in the first film, uh, in taking the uh, the comic book or graphic novel, My Friend Dahmer, he's working from a good text. And in this film, he's remaking a film uh, that Paolo Verzi, uh, an Italian director, made in 2013, and Il, Il Uomo Capital, it's Italian. Mm-hmm. It's Human Capital. It's the same title in Italian. Oh, I didn't realize. Okay, I remember that film. Uh, when it, I didn't see it, but I remember we were looking at it for the cinema back, yeah. in, back in 13. And um, now I need to go back. I haven't had a chance yet, uh, but go back and watch it mm-hmm. and see like what he elevated or what translated or what didn't. Yeah. I think the original is very Nanovicky. 
for, for in, in our own uh, <laughs> you know, I, I can believe of, it. you know it was something with our partnership with the Nanovic Institute that that was something they were interested in but it never materialized anyway that's worth seeing uh but this film uh I, I I'm interested in like all adaptations or remakes that have a geographical shift. He does a very good job of grounding it uh in Long Island mm-hmm. and giving you that community and sense. And so I'm curious to see what the Italian analog is. Uh but quickly for for the plot, it revolves around um two and then we see a third family and then a fourth even. Uh, have uh, societal and financial contractual duties with one another. And you see the class uh, issues that arrive, the stress that comes from these uh, class positions uh, and capitalism and what it does to kind of crush them each. And seeing how when they are outside of their brackets, uh, how things come into sharper relief when you see the kind of Bernie Madoff-esque um, upper-class financier interact with the middle class. You see their those qualities come out, the, the differences, and how people use them against one another. And then when they retreat home, you see the similarities in how people interact and is it is it pretty much very well? Is it focused around a single family, or is it kind of you know uh, overlapping storylines? I'm thinking like you know is this is this like another crash or something like that? Uh, it is. Uh, uh, which which crash? Uh, not <laughs> not <laughs> no, the fun one. Not the fun one. <laughs> the, well, the one that's not really fun. That's right. The one that you would actually want to watch. So uh, the, uh, the the uh, Academy Award winning crash. It is. It's more. Hmm. Uh, what's interesting about the film in how it tells these stories is that it unwinds a a mystery uh, that occurs in it. Uh, there's a, a hit and run accident, and you don't know who the perpetrator is and how things will unfold. But it runs through the series of events from three different vantage points. So you see the three families, mm-hmm. uh, how the story is told by what they experience. So you have overlapping events. Sometimes it's handled a little clumsily, uh, but I think that's part of the fun of it. Uh, so it's not like Rashomon. Mm-hmm. It's just it unfolds in, uh, in, a, in a way that's going to highlight particular families for particular moments okay. with some overlap. Got it. And it's just it's done well. It's character study. It's, uh, it's um, uh, by and large interiors and good cast too you said right yeah you have you have that uh ray donovan doing his ray thing (laughs) uh marissa tomei is great because she plays a uh a brooklyn scream queen and like a like in like a b minus film that no one's ever heard of who marries uh, or is married and finds financial success uh, the film says through her husband's company, okay, and you see her like very uh, thin covering of Brooklyn. Uh-huh. Um, you know, she wears her fineries, her very nice coats, like outside mm-hmm. uh, or without her arms in the in the sleeves. Okay, and she just does stuff that I what I imagine. 
the Brooklyn to Long Island class move up. Looks like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but she's great. Uh, she's doing. Yeah. She's like I would say she's a real bright point for me. Great. Um, and Peter Skarsgård or Skarsgård. Peter Sarsgaard is fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a younger actress in it, Maya Hawke, uh, who's great. Great. That's uh, Ethan Hawke's daughter. Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman started. She's popping up everywhere. Yeah, she's all over the place. Yeah. But she does uh, She does a really good job in it. Great. I like her a lot. Great. All right. Um, so the first one I'll mention is a film I was really looking forward to. So I kind of went in um, ready to like it and uh, really in, and ultimately was uh, uh, satisfied, but not in a way that I would have expected. Um, and it's the latest film from Armando Iannucci. Uh, Armando Iannucci is a British, uh, actually Scottish, I believe, director, um, who is best known for his work on um, uh, The Thick of It and In the Loop, which were the precursors to Veep, uh, the TV series. Um, he also um, was the showrunner for Veep uh, in its original, in its first couple of seasons on HBO. Um, so what he's in, in, in those, in both of those iterations, both the thick of it and Veep, you get, um, this very kind of pointed, uh, political satire, um, known for really sharp dialogue, um, uh, cutting remarks, uh, being a kind of, uh, staple of, of his screenplays. Um, but more recently he directed the film Death of Stalin, which we've talked about on this podcast, which is a film we, Ricky, you and I have discussed as something that, uh, as a film that, it seems to get better um, on repeat viewings and is one that you know, we're kind of hoping is actually looked at more consistently. It'll be interesting to see as people have the best in the decade yeah. list pop up. I wonder if it, it's almost too, I don't think it's quite, it hasn't uh, uh, aged well Yeah, or ha- it hasn't had enough time to age well, but I right. think it will. Yeah, it's a film that I don't know how it got lost in the awards cycle, but it was um, the uh, the screenplay for it should have been it should have been one of the top films for for a screenplay award last year. Um, uh, but anyway, uh, the the latest his latest film is actually an adaptation of Charles Dickens' uh, David Copperfield uh, narrative. Uh, the personal history of David Copperfield is the film title. Um, and supposedly this one is also going to, uh, from what I've heard, is going to miss the current award cycle as well. They're going to hold it until the spring, uh, from what from what I had heard. It could be they could be changing strategies, but um, same thing that happened with Death of Stalin. But um, but I found it to be a really um, I was expecting it to be a kind of revisionist take um, on the David Copperfield narrative. Not that I'm very familiar with the David Copperfield narrative. I, I did I never read it as a kid. Um, which it seems like when people would read David Copperfield <laughs> assigned, I read it in assigned, grade. assigned in high school or junior high. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, so, but you know, the expectation, you know, you know, because of the kinds of other pieces that, uh, or some of the other films that he's made, um, it, uh, it would, we were kind of expecting it to be more of a kind of deconstructed version of it. And while there are kind of whimsical elements kind of early on in the film, it's, he seems to kind of go away from that and present a fairly straightforward adaptation, um, mm-hmm. with the one exception being that um, he employs uh, colorblind casting. Um, so Dev Patel plays the lead role of David Copperfield. Um, you have you know a mix of people of different colors and uh, creeds or whatever, you know, uh, being, uh, playing roles that were traditionally, you know, white British roles, mm-hmm. uh, in the, in the text. Um, 
uh, so kind of playing around with that. But I just found it to be a really um, engaging uh, adaptation and I think um, a, a kind of interesting reflection on the writing process itself, which is really central to the narrative of the film. It's kind of, you know, the film is framed by uh, Copperfield's own writings and uh, just thinking about Iannucci's strength as a writer um, and his own kind of thoughts about the writing process. Um, so how, how anachronistic is it? From the original text? Uh, the movie. Um, well, I mean, you have, I mean, you, I mean, you know, you saw it with me. I mean, you saw that there were these moments of yeah, I'm being kind a journalist of now. disruption. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there were, there were moments of disruption within it. Um, but, uh, but I, I just, it, it flowed pretty much like a standard adaptation. I thought where you kind of go from scene to scene, those scenes play out without any real, I, I expected it to be a little bit more meta or, but it doesn't seem to do that very much. Um, so less or more than the death of Stalin, would you say? Um, well, death of I guess death of Stalin doesn't really. It's not really so much a meta film as it is. I mean, the, the device of, of death of Stalin is that you have actors kind of speaking in their own voices, um, which I'm not sure if that's what's happening in this film as well. If these are their, you know, uh, as opposed to trying to adopt Russian accents or you know for death of Stalin, are these characters? speaking in accents that are representative of their station. I think there, I think he does try to hold to that because you have the working class, um, that you see in one way. And then, um, yeah, I don't remember the, the, like in the bottle company, there aren't posh accents. No, no, I think they, no, I think they, they, you know, they, at the same time, they don't over exaggerate the, you know, the, 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 they don't call over it. No, no, no. <laughs> um, but I just, I, I, th- I feel like it's a, it's, it's a film that kind of plays as, you know, just a solid adaptation and, um, which is not the kind of film I typically seek out. Um, in fact, I typically avoid those kinds of films because they seem pretty trite or whatever, but particularly for Dickens. Right. Right. Um, this was, I, I thought this was very engaging and I'm curious if this will get. We were talking earlier about uh, films that get uh, <laughs> jungle booked or uh-huh. twinned, yeah. where you have uh, two similar films come out at the same time and they kind of right they lose each other because of it. Yeah, um, and I'm wondering if this uh, if that might happen with Little Women in this, and if and Little Women might have pushed it, and maybe that's why they're holding it. Maybe that's why they're holding it till later because they don't want to be. You know, seen a you know, it's it's not the prestige adaptation of the year. Little Women's kind of got that spot claimed, mm-hmm. so they have to they have to hold off a bit. And the mid eighteen hundreds adaptation, yeah. Well, and maybe it works better as like a late spring release, which is supposedly when it's going to kind of come. The out. The film has a very springish feel to it. Yeah, I was if the, if something surprised me, as I didn't go in having looked at anything from it was the um the color of it like it was especially compared to death of stalin Mm -hmm. which is one of the grayest movies Mm -hmm. i've ever seen yeah uh this one had a lot of light and energy very vibrant yeah very vibrant even even in the dingy you know uh the bottle even the dingy bottle factory or the you know the neighborhoods in london where yeah there is there is um it's good you know it's good use of light and color in in those scenes and it's an outdoors Right, movie. So yeah, I I think it could work very well in the spring. Great yeah. cast. Uh, um, Tilda Swinton is really strong. Um, uh, Peter Capaldi, who uh, who is also a veteran of Iannucci's work, uh, kind of the the star of the thick of it. 
um, uh, Hugh, uh, Hugh Laurie. Hugh Laurie, right? Hugh Laurie. Mm-hmm. I'm getting my Hughes mixed up in my head. <laughs> uh, not not Hugh Grant. Hugh Laurie. Um, no, but just a overall, really, really solid group. So worth seeing. Great. So from uh, a very different, uh, well, actually, I was saying a very different film. But one thing from my locket tiff this year, I saw things that were very different, like. Mm-hmm. Last year, I came back and I was like, oh, I saw a lot of... You're talking d- about genocide. Genocide films. <laughs> uh, but this had different uh, different themes approached in different ways, which was which I think probably helped keep me energized throughout it um, and seeing so much stuff. Uh, but from a very different angle, uh, I was... I really liked, I loved a movie from Bangladesh... Uh, a movie made in Bangladesh called Made in Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. And this is a film that would not have been on my radar. However, we have a visiting professor uh, here from Bangladesh in uh, our film studies department. And he, uh, we met because he wanted to bring some directors to campus and he, being one of the foundational professors of film in Bangladesh, has taught all of the people who kind of went on and mm-hmm. taught and are making movies right now. And one of his students is Rubiat Hossein. And he said she has a new movie out at TIFF. Go check it out and maybe we can bring her to campus. And so I dutifully went to this movie and was blown away. I loved it. So uh, thank you very much for the recommendation. And <laughs> Really hope that we can get her to campus. Uh, Made in Bangladesh is a uh, film set in Dhaka and is about the garment industry and the women who uh, are sewing in those garment factories and their labor conditions, their rights, and the the very patriarchal systems both in the office and in the home that keep them subjugated and in these uh, very squalid and dangerous workplaces. And so uh, this sets up like films I like. Mm-hmm. It's very familiar. It feels a lot like uh, one of my favorite films of all time, Coup Per Coup. Uh, and there's a ton of labor factory movies right now coming out of Europe, unsurprisingly. Uh, the Nothing Factory Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, that's finally selling. getting. That's that's uh, that was. We saw that a couple years ago. Yeah, and now it's coming back around. At War is another one. Mm-hmm. Angola, uh, whatever. Uh, so the uh, so it's from a genre that I really like, and it is uh, it, people. I read the reviews, and people were like it's preachy, it's too much, and mm-hmm. I think that's what I really liked about it. <laughs> but it's shot in what I would call like late 80s Iranian uh, realism style, and which is to say, like, staged. Mm-hmm. However, particularly well-blocked. However, the performances are uh, more realist. Are they non-professionals? Do we know? Yes. You, they are. Okay. Yeah. The, the vast majority. Okay. And, and the performances have... But they are, but they're they are acting. It's not mm-hmm. like they're catching people candidly, right? 
And because of that, they're pretty big performances. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciate that. But it, it walks through the process of a woman trying to form a union at her workplace and the struggles that happen along the way, the relationships within the workplace, the romantic ones, the familial ones that serve as hurdles, and uh, and seeing the people that are in the NGO world who are helping or not helping. And it just it's uh, it has... It's very didactic and saying, like, well, if you needed to form a union, here's what you would probably need to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it gets the struggles that someone would go through very well. It hits the notes, right? And it shows the the moxie of uh, what's inside, uh, you know, tons and tons and tons of these garment workers. So, and I don't think I've ever seen anything out of Bangladesh. I mean, it's it's it doesn't. I mean, it's it's got to be a small industry, or at least in terms of what gets. What even makes it to the festival circuit? Um, there's not a very prolific output. True. Yeah. Yeah. There were um, there were a couple from the mid 2000s that I remember mm-hmm. popping in, uh, but no, it's not. It's not. Uh, especially because uh, thinking of uh, the the nations next to it and some cultural overlaps, mm-hmm. you would have you have a lot coming out of India and right. Right. Um, other parts of South Asia, uh, but not so much Bangladesh. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's why, as it has that emerging cinema realism mm-hmm. that really works. And maybe it's the start of something. Maybe, it, you know, this is, I mean, if you were to talk about Romania, you know, 15 years ago, um, you know, people would say, oh, I didn't even know they made films in Romania. And then, you know, you have this incredible output in the late, you know, the late 2000s. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it could be, it could be just the, maybe this, if this gets, if this is successful or I don't know what it takes for these national industries to really prosper, but. Um. Well, I think it's a sign that, I think a marker that you are coming from a country that doesn't have a very big cinematic tradition is that they stick an academic on a panel with you. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I was unable to make the panel, but there was a, like a global affairs public policy person, okay, who's talking kind of with speak her to the real, you know, well, yeah, the, the filling in the here's what you need to know about Bangladesh as sure. well as the cinema, sure. um, which is, I don't know, somewhat condescending too, yeah. Uh, but it just shows you where we are in their development as as a nation. Well, it, and it, having it, a cinematic tradition. and it limits it to just being read as uh, based on those you know actual circumstances as opposed to just treating it as you know a it's creative limiting, effort. yeah. So. And it's something that we, that is, we're very prone to. Do, I'm very prone to do myself. You know, right? Like, oh, let's put an expert up against this film so that we can, see, you know, have help the world emerge. It's just a way to help people understand yeah. it. So, uh, but um, I I know we'll show it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope we can get her, uh, Hossein, the director, to come out. Um, but I really encourage people. I don't know this is going to have a very very big footprint, but I really do think it's a special piece of filmmaking that. I think we'll probably come back for my top three of the year. Okay. Um, well, I'm going to uh, continue on that with a, with another uh, la- uh, film focusing on labor, um, and that's from uh, one of my favorite directors, uh, Ken Loach, um, who's you know who's been 
not necessarily at the peak uh, of his talents, I would say, lately. And that's not – I don't mean that to be a, a, a harsh criticism. But, you know, certainly his more recent films um, – I actually did – I did like I, Daniel Blake very much. You weren't you weren't as big a fan, I know. But um, but relative to his, his other slate of films that he's released over the last 10 years or so, things that I've seen in Toronto, I've been pretty kind of underwhelmed. Um, and uh, he has a new film uh, that uh, – uh, showed at Toronto. It actually, it also, pre- I think it originally premiered at uh, Cannes earlier this year. That I that I feel like is very much a return to what people expect from him, um, but also what he does really, really well. Um, and that's a film uh, titled "Sorry We Missed You." Um, so uh, in this film, uh, Loach is taking up uh, known for his Ken Loach is known for his films about uh, working class. We just showed. Um, we actually showed his historic fil- historical film, um, The Wind That Shakes the Barley, as part of our um, uh, Screening the Trouble series, uh, which is somewhat of a divergence from what he's better known for. But this, uh, this film uh, looks at a family uh, kind of struggling to make ends meet um, in uh, Britain's version of the gig economy. Um, what was the term that was used? Zero hour zero contracts. Zero hour contracts, which I, you know, I looked up zero hour contracts to see what that's all about. Um, but basically uh, focusing on, in this case, um, a, a woman who works as a visiting nurse uh, going around to uh, uh, kind of, it seems like on a contract basis, basically treating uh, you know people at you know, various states of... Uh, of need, uh, she she needs to visit people in their homes uh, to give them care, and then her husband uh, takes up a job as a driver for a um, delivery company. So some something like a UPS, but seems to be more kind of uh, uh, not as not as corporate. Uh, more uh, most of the people who work for the company are on these kind of contracts where um, they're sold the job with the idea that they have independence, they're, you know, essentially self-employed, but yet everything about the expectations that they have uh, for the job suggests otherwise. Um, and, and the character ultimately suffers the consequences from uh, having to kind of adhere to that. Um, but what was, um, you, you mentioned, you know, uh, that Made in Bangladesh had a kind of preachy element that you responded favorably to. Um, what I found in this film is that in most of Loach's films, there are these moments where you know someone will get up and start to start to preach, uh, or you know, uh, it's multiple usually, times yeah. throughout the movie. <laughs> <laughs> right. Here's the problem. Yeah, everybody. here's the problem, and here is how we fix it. And I think that's it's very intentional. It's 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 a didactic element of it that's designed to kind of speak to the masses. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe with the exception of uh, one scene where we we see the the driver's boss kind of speak to him about the challenges he faces in, in managing, um, the, the operation. Um, you don't really get too much of that. Um, in fact, you get a nice balance of, um, kind of lighter moments in these characters' lives. And that's in part because not only do you have the focus on this couple, but their two children, uh, who are both very strong. We were commenting on, you know, how we really liked uh, the performances of the kids. And in fact, actually, the son, who's the old, they have a... Uh, Seb? Preteen, yeah, exactly. The Seb, who's the teenage son, and there's a, a preteen daughter. Seb ultimately becomes kind of an interesting, unexpected uh, voice of reason uh, when he talks about, you know, 
when he kind of challenges his parents about, you know, why do they work in the way that they do where they have to work all these crazy hours and they're, you know, they're not home and they're not, they're not really present. Um, but he's also rebellious in his own right. He's a, an aspiring graffiti artist. Uh, and we see some great scenes of him and his friends, um, you know, uh, spraying graffiti. Say, aspiring and prolific. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. If you look at um, all that, all that he's been putting out there, but yeah, it's just a great. I think you really warm to this this group of characters. I think because um, you know you are, they are very much you know sympathetic in terms of how they're framed, but also um, you see kind of the the realism of uh, you know uh, the kind of troubles, but also some of the joys that they have. There's nice moments where they you know they just they have Indian takeout together, and it's. It's just a nice, nice little scene. So um, it's, ni- it's fun until it isn't, <laughs> right? Exactly, exactly. So. And what Ken Loach does really well is uh, he doesn't create villains within the movie. You know, it's right. very much the system is is at fault. It's yes. not there are. This isn't. We don't have individual humans to blame. We have the larger structure and corporations and politicians and things like that. And I think this movie is what it does really well in some of its better ones is that it, you you are constantly focused on the labor system is broken. That's right. Yeah. I mean, the manager who seems to be set up as the bad guy early on, just, I mean, in terms of his, he's, he's a physically imposing guy. He's not, you know, guy you'd want to meet in a dark alley on the mm-hmm. wrong night. Um, you know, he, he seems to be set up to be that kind of scapegoat of, of, of the problems. But perhaps in that moment where he talks about the system, we get, we get, we kind of understand, you know, why he is the way that he is. Mm-hmm. Um, it actually makes him, Kind of oddly sympathetic. Yeah, even though you dislike him the most at that point. Right. Also, right. You, you see, you see it for what it is. Right. And this was one during Ken Loach movies. Uh, you, you've seen a couple. You know things are going to fall apart. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times you just know how it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so you're telegraphed. just you're, it's telegraphed. So you're waiting for the car crash, and then there's yeah. a car crash. Yeah. This was a movie that. I was white knuckling, mm-hmm. and not only did I not get the moves that it made when things started to fall apart, or I didn't see things. I didn't see. I didn't see either the rough spots or the sunshine coming. Mm-hmm. Like they were unexpected, yeah, and in unexpected ways, yeah. And that for me was a real, like, a, was, I think it's why it was back on form. Yeah, and I think yeah, there's a suddenness to a lot of yeah. those moments as opposed to here it comes. Because yeah. you know, and they set you up, they they trick you because there is, like you said, white knuckling. I mean, I was this was. Uh, it, it, I also saw the film um, Uncut Gems, which didn't make my list, but it's a film I recommend people see, and it's gonna. It, that's a film that's gonna get a lot of attention uh, when it's released, and people have talked about that as a kind of white knuckle experience because. Uh, it's a, a film that Adam Sandler stars in. He plays a, a, a merchant in the Diamond uh, District in New York, and you're kind of you're very much in his head, and it's a kind of frenetic experience. But I found myself much more um, kind of uncomfortable or you know anxious watching the Ken Loach film because I've seen so many of his films, and I you know have a certain set of expectations of well, if things seem like they're going okay for this family, they're not. It's not going to last. I know things are going to go wrong. And they're just so sympathetic. They're successfully sympathetic. Um, so I was much more. I was. I was much more anxious uh, watching this. Um, 
and and then and like you said, when the moments pay off, either the the happier moments or the more tragic moments in their story, um, they just they play out really well. So, a great one from him to look forward to. And uh, I'm sure we'll show it. Yep. What's your uh, What's your third one? My last one is uh, Varda by Agnes, uh, which would be a film by Agnes Varda. <laughs> yep. Uh, and this is, I would call, um, of uh, it's in her documentary side of things. She mm-hmm. is a filmmaker who makes both narrative and documentary films, often combining the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is much more squarely in document uh, documentary. And has a lot of similarities to Faces Places in that she is an active, well, she often is, but in this film, uh, she's talking about work and her own work. Mm-hmm. And it's a career retrospective that she puts on about herself. Mm-hmm. When she was, I mean, north of 90, I don't know. I think she was 90. She was 90, yeah, when she died. So, um, And she was doing a road show of showing clips of her work and talking about it. And um, what's great about it is you see someone, uh, you're watching it, and you're like, oh, my gosh, this is this, this 90-year-old is so smart and so cool. And you go back, and you're like, oh, man, this 25-year-old is so smart and so cool. <laughs> She's Just see, always been there. You see that she was someone who had great vision and ideas about what film can do, what art can do. And she doesn't express it in a very, like, staid Ken Burns way. She keeps playing with it, makes mm-hmm. it interesting, makes it fun. And... I really, I have a soft spot for older, playful filmmakers. Yeah. Um, and she still has it, and it was great to watch. Well, and she, yeah, and she's been doing this throughout her career. Like you said, I mean, when she was 25, she was doing this. I mean, yeah, one of the smartest, one of the funniest. I mean, really just like such a sharp wit. But, 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 um, which you know that wittiness comes out in at different moments, and in, in not only the new film that she's made this this film that's about her work, but you see it in the clips of the of the earlier films. Um, but uh, but yeah, just re- you know, never really content to just kind of settle into a, a, a certain form. Even though you know this film is very similar to the last three or four films that she's made. Um, in that, you know, she's just reached a stage in her career where she's very reflective and she's kind of, she's doing a lot of looking back, but she's also, I mean, if you look at Faces Places, for example, that's a film where she tries to find, um, you know, a new approach to, to, to open up that avenue of, of reflection with these, you know, this traveling showcase of, uh, giant photographs that she and, uh, J.R., the artist, uh, present, and the with her the she um I, you you get to see all of her previous work and you see some of the missteps too mm-hmm. <laughs> like like some of her early digital stuff yeah in the early two thousands is like nah, I don't I can yeah. see like the trap that she got into it's nice to see the flow of the career right. but what's great is I left that movie and I was like okay I really need to see 
uh, Jane B by Agnes V, uh-huh. the the Jane, Jane Burke one, one. Yep. Uh, and some others where you just saw a clip. And you're like, Kung oh. Fu Master, <laughs> also, Kung Fu Master. which is also tied to Jane B. <laughs> That's the if I could have. Remember when cell phones were new and mm-hmm. you would just download MP3s and make them your ringtone? Yeah, I, I, and people don't do that anymore. <laughs> uh, but ha- hearing Agnes Varda say Kung Fu Master, <laughs> that would be like, oh, I need this for my ringtone now. <laughs> Yeah, she's. I mean, it's it's just, and you look back, and the 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 scope of her career is so remarkable. Um, you know, for as many years as she was making films, and really, and being, you know, good right up until the end. Sadly, we lost her this past year. Um, but this is just a, a a fitting kind of way to to go back uh, to 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 recognize her work, but also. Um, go back and and find those inspirations in those earlier films. And it was a very it was happy tears by the time yeah. I was done. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you're sad because someone's died, right? But you're like, oh, she made she lived a life worth living yeah. and was uh, was putting it out there along the way. So um, this is also a film I would say, hey, watch this and then go and watch her films because yeah. you start to – she just – she explains, like, here's what I've been trying to do mm-hmm. in various ways and forms throughout my career. And this would be a – I would almost say, um, you know how people like that Stephen King on writing? Yeah. I'd be like, oh, I think Varda by Agnes should be something that you show – It's a master class. Young filmmakers. Yeah. Yeah, and then they're they're just going to do whimsical stuff that they don't know why they're doing. <laughs> but I do think it's really it's great at explaining uh, both in process and in grand theory why she's making things that I think could be applicable to even someone like Ken Loach who makes mm-hmm. a very different type of film. Right. A little bit of a spoiler for Le Bonheur in it. That was my only. That was the only thing I would say if, if you're coming into it without having seen her films. Oh. Uh, there's a little bit of a reveal, but we'll leave that. You know, but that's okay. That's I think that's I, there's so much else that um, makes it worth it. All right. Um, so the last film I'm going to mention is a film uh, from Lebanon, uh, which uh, is confusing because the title of the film is 1982. Um, but the film is a contemporary film. Uh, well, I mean, it's it's made in uh, the 2019, uh, but it is a film that's set in 1982. Which, uh, for any you know uh, scholars of uh, uh, late 20th century history, know that that this was a pivotal year in Lebanon's history uh, when Israel invaded um, uh, in, in fighting with uh, battling with Syria. Um, there have been other films uh, that actually have addressed this. We showed a film titled Lebanon, which was uh, more about the sort of battlefield um, aspects of what was going on during 1982. Um, we showed that back at the cinema a, a few years ago and actually in our screen piece series, even though it's more of a war film. <laughs> um, but uh, it's, a, it's a film directed by uh, Walid uh, Mounes, um, and it stars uh, Nadine Labaki, um, who's... A wonderful Lebanese actress who also uh, directed the film Capernaum, uh, which we showed uh, last year. Um, one of my favorite films, actually, from last year. Um, she plays a school teacher um, at a, uh, uh, I guess it's, I don't know if it's a private school or not, but it's it's a, there at the, the, the she, it's a school that um, has it's kind of mixed school where you have kids in aging in range from you know elementary age to high school. 
Um, but the classrooms are all, you know, pretty much she, she is responsible for a group of, uh, either fourth or fifth graders. Um, and so in representing, uh, their experiences, you see, um, you, it's essentially, it's a late in the semester, um, day at the school. It's, you know, it must be, it's sometime in like June. And if you, uh, can recall your own kind of school experiences at that time of year, it's when people start to get a little, um, uh, itchy and you know not sitting in their seats and you know you're you're it's when you open it's the, hot it, it's when you open the windows in the classroom for the first time and you know you're getting that fresh air in and uh, people are you know they're they're, they're squirrely well you just gave me a really before. good like Madeline moment you <laughs> when those windows open yeah yeah when you and they're they're the big windows so you mm-hmm. get that you know that in your old school where you have the the big window that lets in that big blast it doesn't of air. smell like bathroom detergent anymore <laughs> that's right that's right so there is a natural Natural world that that soon enough you're going to be outside, uh, kind of experiencing. So they're at the end of the end of the school year, um, and it's funny because you know as uh, th- this all this is going on, you know Israel is invading. Uh, so so they're just trying to deal with the logistics of getting these kids home from school um, uh, while this uh, invasion is going on in um, uh, in in Lebanon um, and. It, interesting that the, you know one of the one of the uh, what's what's kind of rewarding about it is that while this very serious uh, set of events is going on, you just have the sort of normal uh, bureaucracy of the school kind of playing out, um, as well as the kids' own. Like the kids are not necessarily as concerned about the fact that war is breaking out. They're still dealing with like you know, oh, I'm I'm in love with this girl and I've never told her how I feel and I've and I've got one more day to do it before you know we break for the summer. Um, so they're just still dealing with kind of normal kid stuff. And the administrators are just, you know, they're frustrated, like saying, couldn't they have waited to start the war until the last day of school, <laughs> you know, just to give us, you know, uh, you know, time to just um, not have to deal with this. Um, so there's a kind of, there's a, there's an, there's an rewarding kind of everyday aspect of it while there's very kind of serious uh, things going on. But, um, and also <laughs> one of the things that kind of made it very 1982 is uh, they're listening, you keep hearing the song, um, I in the Sky by the Ellen Parsons Project, <laughs> which is, <laughs> which is something, you know, we would have heard, I would have heard uh, in my, uh, you know, junior high school <laughs> in 1982. <laughs> so there's, you know, so, oh, this is very relatable. Um, they listen to the same terrible music we did. Um, but, uh, but yeah, just that it's, it's a nice mix of kind of taking, you know, not minimizing the seriousness of what's going on. Cause the kids, you know, while they're, they're taking their last test of the year, they keep getting disrupted because, you know, there's like air fights going on. Uh, there's, you know, air warfare going on outside the school. Right. Um, and the teachers are telling me, don't look at that. Just, you know, finish your exams first. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that's nice to, I mean, especially in the stranger things haze. Right. To see a 1980s film where it's just low-key 1980s. Right, and it's not, it's not overly, like, it's like... Everyone is holding an Orange Julius right. with the logo outwards. Yeah, you barraging you with nostalgia of like, remember this, remember this. I mean, you know, the, the Alan Parsons thing is nostalgic, but um, but beyond that, it really is... I mean, if anything, you're nostalgic for that that essence of experience as right. opposed to just the these, these you know, materialistic markers of experience. Well, and it's, it's also, I mean, we were kicking it in 1982 Lebanon so we don't have that 
direct. I mean, it could right, we don't know. That. Yeah, it could be Stranger Things for, if you're in Beirut, but that's right. Probably not. But it, because it's removed, it's right. just more of the patina and small things pop yeah. out. Well, they didn't set it in a mall, so they didn't. Yeah, even yeah smart. <laughs> Which well, uh, and classrooms uh, are really good at. Uh, you can keep them pretty atemporal. Yeah, uh, because they. Teachers don't change them. <laughs> you, know, mm-hmm. you don't have money for new bulletin boards. And so, right. you know, oh, Mrs. Moyer's presidents and Eisenhower, and that's that. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, what was the, uh, was the scope, like, is it like day, like a day in the life? Day of? in the life, yeah. Very, so that's what I was going to get to is, you know, it, it's, it's very, it's, it's all at the, on this last day of, or, or not, the, you know, it's like the second to last day of school. Um and uh, yeah, so you're pretty much, and not even you're not even getting the full day. I think it's I think it's just like the afternoon because like the the last probably the last third of the film is about how are they gonna uh, are the buses gonna run? You know, it's about getting the kids on the right buses, and the parents start showing up because they're worried about whether they're gonna be able to get back to um, you know because some of them are in they're living in parts of the city where it's mm. you know, where um, there's more. Going so it's a on. bit of a, a Clio. Seven to five. A little bit, but not, but five, not, not five, five to seven. seven. Yeah, but there's, you know, the whole thing about, you know, Beirut is divided at that point. So you've got, you know, East uh, East Beirut and West Beirut, and I think it's West Beirut is more the the access points to West Beirut are being cut off. So, uh-huh. so I mean, you're getting some of the real, you know, impact of what was going on at that point. But um, and and some of, you know, if probably if I looked more closely at it, and again, the, this is the challenge of a festival screening is there's there's some of the cultural detail that might you're not you're not necessarily going to get when you're kind of breezing through, mm-hmm. you know, four or five movies a day. But uh, there seems to Sometimes be. Sometimes it's for the better. Yeah. You can go back to it and you can mm-hmm. kind of give it a closer look. But um, it's a real solid choice. Yeah. I just I I was curious. I um, I needed something to do while I was folding laundry. And there was a documentary on HBO about people who went to Stuyvesant. Oh, yeah. Okay. Stuyvesant. I always yeah. mispronounce it. Yeah. Bedstown. Um, <laughs> and uh, on 9-11. Okay. And it took completely the wrong approach. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it was what I wanted to hear in some ways was, you know, what was it like? In, like, in the, like someone who was experiencing it. From a very um, isolated institution, like a school, a hospital, a pharmacy, you know, where you go regularly and, you know, like schools are a great place for filtering uh, national emergencies. That's Mm -hmm. why I like uh, Ladybug, Ladybug so much. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they, because they were keeping it only on like the big picture, they Right. And it was and and it was expository and talking head and that just wasn't the right way to do it. So this film, I'm very I did I missed it, so I'm really curious to check it out. Especially yeah. having a bad taste in my mouth for our, a very similar type of film. Right. Well, what if you know not everything you know when when something like that happens, you know, a major you know national emergency or whatever. How much of your do, you know do you do you completely um, remove yourself from your everyday life. I mean, you certainly alter your everyday life, mm-hmm. but you don't completely set it aside. Yeah. And that's kind of, this is what this film captures really nicely. So. Sounds great. Great. All right. Well, those are, those are six to look out for from, from Toronto. Hopefully we'll have, uh, I think have we'll show most of these yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. 
in the DeBarlo Performing Arts Center, Browning Cinema. Wonderful. So check them out here. Uh, we will be back uh, very soon with another episode of Establishing Shot. Until then, we hope to see you at the cinema. As they say in Canada, bye. Bye, eh? <laughs> <laughs>